you do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. Let every nation know, whether it wishes us well or ill, that we shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe, to assure the survival and the success of the What up, what up? This is your boy Rob Clark welcoming you to the 22 November Network. Get ready for another exciting edition of the Lone Gunman Podcast featuring me, that's right, your boy Rob Clark coming at you. Stay tuned. Be right there. everybody this is rob clark here on the lone gunman podcast episode number 55 today i have a very special guest joining me and i have not talked to him before uh but uh for those of you out there in the facebook world hopefully you've heard of him his name is charles cliff welcome charles to the show how you doing buddy i'm doing well rob thank you for having me on hey no problem at all no problem at all and uh i wanted to have you on today uh because you know we share a lot of common interest in the uh JFK community and, and with research, and wanted to talk to you a little bit today about the Garrison investigation. But first, I can talk for a long time about that. So, well, let's that's do it, not brother. A <laughs> All right. Well, first, just uh, tell everybody a little bit about yourself. Maybe how you got in, in, uh, interested in the assassination, and uh, you know, just a little background on you there, Charles. For those that aren't familiar. All right. Well. I'm coming from uh, Vancouver, BC, Canada, home of the Canucks. That could be a good or bad thing, depending on who you are. Uh, anyways, um, my interest in the uh, case actually came when I was rather young. I was about 10 years old, back around 1988. And my mom and my sister were really uh, involved in watching a lot of the uh, documentaries that were on TV for the um, 25th anniversary of the assassination, which would have been in 88, and there were just times where I would just uh, sat down and just started watching them with them, and the more and more I watched, the more and more interested I got in uh, in the case, and then in 91, Oliver Stone came out with his uh, movie JFK, and probably since that time, I've watched it about 300 times, uh, yeah. I watched constantly. And uh, as I went in through my teenage years, uh, I started reading books. The first book I ever read was uh, Crossfire by Jim Mars. 
And I was uh, finding them out of the library. I was buying them in the bookstores. Who buys books at bookstores anymore? Um, <laughs> but uh, I just started going there. And then with the advent of social media and Facebook, uh, I just started uh, going on to groups. And uh, obviously there's a lot of people out there that like uh, are interested in the same topic as I am. So um, I just got into discussions. And about uh, two, two and a half years ago, I was invited by Brian Haskins who was the um, administrator of the um, JFK Assassination Research Bureau, which is a Facebook uh, research and discussion group, to be one of his fellow admins that I've been admitting there uh, for the last two and a half years, along with being involved in, you know, some other uh, discussion groups as well. Cool, cool, yeah. I mean, your story sounds a lot like mine. Uh, you know, we first became interested in the case at about the same time, I'd probably say. Um, like I said, right around 87, 88, I had to do do a paper on John F. Kennedy, you know, write up basically a biography report, you know, and I was totally oblivious to, to everything. You know, I I had heard, you know, of course that Oswald had shot him and, and believed that because I didn't hear anything otherwise. Um, but so I went to the library and I started looking up, you know, how we had to do it back in the old days with the card catalog. (laughs) Yeah, and then that you was had, very convenient. Yeah, and then, and then you know, and then you had to actually go into the library and find the book that you're looking for using the uh, I forget what the Dewey Decimal System, I think it was called. Yeah, I mean these, these kids today don't have, don't know how good they have it, Charles. With you know, the go internet. to Google and type something in. There you go. Oh my God! But yeah, so you know, I'd, I'd go get these books, and I stumbled across a book by Jim Garrison called "On the Trail of the Assassins," and. I read that and I was like, holy shit, you know, this is not what I've been taught. And after reading that and I did my report and all that, you know, I just kept on uh, reading. You know, it, it was something that interested me. And then, like you said, JFK came out and I was like, yep, here we go. And, uh, you know, of course, there was a big onslaught, you know, around 92 with the JFK Records Act and uh, the ARRB and... Uh, you know, like I said, ever since then, I've been interested, probably read hundreds of books about it. But enough about me. Let's get back to you, my friend. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, let's, let's get down to nuts and bolts about the Garrison investigation, because a lot of people tend to, and I'm a little biased because I run a Garrison group on Facebook, but a lot of people in other groups, you never, ever see mention at all the Garrison investigation. And... You know, Jim Garrison was, I believe, you know, a great man who stood by his convictions and tried to do the right thing. And unfortunately, he wasn't able to get the results that he so desired. But, you know, he left us a great wealth of knowledge that we normally wouldn't have had if it hadn't been for his investigation. But that's right. And like I say, whether... What, no matter what you think of Garrison or what you think of Clay Shaw and regarding his guilt or innocence, just the mere information we got from that investigation alone uh, is worth uh, giving Jim Garrison, uh, commending Jim Garrison, because if he doesn't launch that investigation, there's probably still a bunch of stuff there that's hidden, and maybe we don't know even half of what we know today. Exactly. I mean, you know, with without... And I was trying to think earlier today, Charles, about 
how what what triggered the uh I guess it was the sudden interest. I mean, I th- I'm pretty sure it was the day after the assassination or a couple of days after. Exactly what triggered, what was the catalyst for the interest in David Ferry in New Orleans? Well, what had happened is Garrison was, you know, like the rest of the country that day, watching the endless news reports from, uh, you know, the uh, news networks about uh, the assassination about Oswald. And then he learned the tidbit that Oswald had the previous summer been living in New Orleans. So, at that point, being like any DA would, he would talk to people, talk to his men, and try and find out, you know, who was this guy associating with and any sort of connection to his city, being that he's the DA of New Orleans, uh, he's something he's going to want to find out. So, he had his men out about going around and talking to many of the uh, people out in the New Orleans area and trying to find associates of his day and a couple people in particular Jack Martin uh, who worked at a guy Bannister's office we'll get to you know who these guys were uh, said that uh, he had seen Oswald in Guy Bannister's office and he was with David Ferry and um, according to Garrison a couple of his other investigators had also um, found people that said they saw Oswald together with Ferry and also, he got a tip, or one of his investigators, uh, Herbert Coleman, got a tip that David Ferry, on the afternoon of the assassination, had gone on a trip to Texas. So at that point, Garrison figures, well, I should probably bring him in and start talking to him. So Garrison brought him in and questioned him. And after questioning him, he thought, you know what, something's not adding up with his story, I'm going to turn him over and have the FBI question him. So he turns Ferry over to the FBI, the FBI questions him, and they say, no, there's no connection to the assassination for David Ferry. Garrison was a former FBI man himself, so he figured, okay, they've done their job, so there's nothing there, and didn't bother uh, pursuing it any further. So that's kind of what got started on the investigation, and it wasn't until uh, several years later that he got back into interest in it, uh, probably around 1966, when, well, there's actually conflicting stories about what rekindled his interest. The popular one, the one that's shown in the movie uh, JFK, shows him having a conversation with uh, New Orleans Senator Russell Long, mm-hmm. and Russell Long, uh, they're sitting on an airplane, they're talking in the assassination came up, and Russell Long said, you know what, uh, he didn't buy the Warren Commission, he didn't believe it, and I believe the phrase he is reported to use is, that dog don't hunt, and if you're down in the south and you're into hunting at all, you'll know what that means. So Garrison basically then, after that conversation goes off, and he ordered a full volume of the Warren Report, and started reading it, and pretty much like anybody else that decides to read the Warren Report, well, he kept finding inconsistencies and things that didn't quite make sense in it. And more and more, the more he read it, the more he didn't buy into it, and the more he thought, you know what, there's something wrong here. This, we've got to take another look at this. And it was at that point, uh, towards the uh, mid to late part of 1966, that he quietly decided to... Uh, you know, open up a new investigation 
uh, with his staff. Right now, about this time, you know, of course, you got you have books starting to come out. You got Mark Lane doing what, doing what he was doing back then. You had uh, outspoken people like Vince Salandria out of Philadelphia. You had a lot of these early critics of the Warren Report, you know, starting to surface at about the, about the same time that Garrison uh, was, was beginning his investigation. And a lot of these guys, including people like Harold Weisberg, uh, Mark Lane, they, they uh, basically volunteered their, their, their services, uh, right. you know, to help him out and, and give him information. Yeah, a lot of these guys joined on. Mark Lane uh, had actually just taken out a lease on an apartment, I believe, in New York City. And after going out and meeting with and talking with Garrison, canceled his lease immediately and went down to New Orleans to help volunteer on Garrison's staff. Part of the problem is, though, is that he had, well, at first he was doing it in secret, and he didn't want any publicity for it. He wanted to just kind of do it, kind of lay low. But uh, a reporter from the New Orleans State Item, a lady by the name of Rosemary James, started looking in and started talking to people around the... Um, French Quarter and around the city of New Orleans and said, found out that Garrison's people were been coming around and talking about Oswald and talking about the assassination. And then all of a sudden, it becomes a front page story on the state's item in February of 1967. Uh, so he wanted to keep it out of the press and unfortunately it blew up and as soon as the front page uh, story hit, then all of a sudden the media starts coming down there and it becomes a huge story. Right, and, and Garrison was really, I guess, particular would be the word I'd use to when it actually came to um, putting Clay Shaw on trial. He was really particular about the witnesses that he that he wanted to use, and he didn't want to be he didn't want to give the give the defense any kind of a reason, um, be it you know drug use or homosexuality or or anything like that, that they could point a finger back and, and discredit his witnesses. So he was he was going about things the hard way, if you will. Yes, and he was. And another part of the piece of the puzzle that Garrison read in the Warren Report is a person that he knew and went to law school with, a New Orleans uh, lawyer named Dean Andrews, who said that uh, the day after the assassination, he got called and asked to go to Dallas to be a lawyer for Lee Oswald as he was being questioned by the Dallas police. And he was asked, well, who called you to ask you that? And the name uh, that he said, he said that a man by the name of Clay Bertrand uh, was the person that called him and asked him to go to represent Lee Oswald. Uh, so Garrison started looking around the French Quarter and looking around New Orleans to try and nail down who this Clay Bertrand was. Part of the problem is, is that in the years previous to the assassination, Jim Garrison had led a crackdown in the French Quarter. And, you know, a lot of organized crime and a lot of, uh, you know, he'd gone after drugs, gone after prostitution, gone after organized crime. And part of the problem is, is a lot of the bar and saloon owners down in the French Quarter that time, they were kind of on the take, and a lot of them were in on it. And when there was garrison started to shut down these illegal activities, they were losing money from it. So garrison got reluctance uh, from people 
to want to cooperate them because he had caught, he had, you know, cost them some money because of his crackdown in the French Quarter. But he went around and he actually found people off the record, a couple of him, and he writes so in his book, that he found people who off the record would not testify, but off the record he would state that Clay Bertrand was the name being used by Clay Shaw, who was the director of the International Trademark in Dallas. Uh, Shaw was actually a well-known figure in New Orleans. Uh, sorry, not in Dallas, but in New Orleans. Shaw was a well-known figure in New Orleans, and he was having trouble finding people who would go on the record and confirm this. Right. So that was part of his part of his issue there. But he kept working at it, and working at it, and working at it. Right. And part of the problem was that uh, Old Clay Shaw was leading somewhat of a double life, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Uh, Shaw was, you know, a public profile, but uh, Shaw, a lot of people didn't know at the time, but Shaw was a homosexual and was leading a life, uh, you know, in some of the bars with some of the younger men in New Orleans. And that is also apparently uh, one of the links and one of the ways he knew David Ferry, who, of course, we talked about earlier, uh, that apparently knew Oswald and um, took that trip to Texas. And who Garrison brought it for questioning right after the assassination. Right, and it, it's it's important to not necessarily highlight it for that reason, but also to point out that you know homosexuality in this case is, is somewhat of a theme when it comes to a lot of these major players like uh, General Edwin Walker, uh, Jack Ruby, yeah, Clay Shaw, David Ferry. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, several others. I mean, there was even, I think Dean Andrews, you know, implied that uh, Oswald was a little swishy. Yeah. And that certainly was. But Garrison really didn't want to make that a factor or anything in the case because he didn't want it to make it seem like it was a witch hunt. So he kind of shied away from even making that any sort of connection with that because he didn't want it to be, okay, well, this guy's just prosecuted, persecuting him for this reason. So, uh, so what happens is that, again, David Ferry um, comes to the forefront uh, because of his reported um, association with Lee Harvey Oswald, which actually goes all the way back to the early to mid-1950s, as David Ferry was the, the leader of a troop in the Civil Air Patrol, and for those of you who don't know who, what the Civil Air Patrol is, it's kind of like, I guess it would be like the uh, cadets, almost like uh, an upscale version of the Boy Scouts, I think. It's kind of, is I think that's how I read it. Is that right, Rob? Yeah. Kind of like the cadets or... Yeah, kind of like a pre, uh, pre-military, you know, right. if, that, if that's what you were trying to head into back then, you know, maybe that's what... Instead of the yeah. Boy Scouts, you try to do, yeah, like ROTC. And you teach you, like, life skills and so on like that. Right, you know, and, the uh, boys interested okay. in flying. And the R.B. Oswald was actually a member of the troop that David Ferry was a leader of, even though David Ferry denied it at the time, but years later, in the early 1990s, uh, there was a PBS special on the show Frontline. Uh, they had an episode called who was Lee Harvey Oswald, 
and they actually produce a picture of both David Ferry and Oswald at a Civil Air Patrol cookout. Right, and there's even stories um, from other witnesses, including uh, one of the one of the boys. I forget his name right now. I don't, I, well, I don't think it was Ed Vogel, but of course it might have been um, that David Ferry was actively looking for that very picture um, soon after Garrison started sniffing around for him. That that's right. He started calling him. He started calling all his old Civil Air Patrol contacts, trying to find that picture. Now, there's even been reports, now, they've never been 100% confirmed, but there's been several reports that when Oswald was arrested in Dallas, he actually had on him David Ferry's library card. Now, I don't know if that's true. No one's ever really said one way or another for sure that it was or wasn't, but that's certainly something that has come up. Right. Yeah. I've heard that that allegation alleged before. Um, So... When we're talking about David Ferry, you know, he was he was kind of reluctant to talk to Jim Garrison, though, um, wasn't he? He was very reluctant to talk to him. Um, he, at the point that the investigation went public and was in the papers and media, uh, it seemed like Ferry began to fear for his life because, of course, there's the, uh, you know, the report that people, uh, you know, witnesses in this case were starting to mysteriously vanish and mysteriously die, and it seemed like he almost started to panic, and one night, um, Lou Ivon, who was uh, one of Garrison's chief investigators, gets a call at home from a frantic David Ferry, uh, basically saying, you know what, uh, I'm, a, I'm a dead man, uh, he's gonna, there, people are after me, I'm a dead man, and so, Ivon talks to Garrison, and what they do is they take, uh, ferry to a hotel right. in New Orleans and basically go up and talk to him in the hotel uh, away from everybody so they have a discussion with Ferry that night and it was an off the record discussion but according to Lou Ivan uh, Ferry confirmed that he knew Oswald that he knew Clay Shaw and that they had been working with the CIA along with um, you know, some of the elements of the anti-Castro-Cuban groups in New Orleans. So, then they decide, okay, well, they go into deciding whether or not they're going to, um, whether they're going to prosecute Ferry, whether to keep him as a material witness, and then the next day, he turns up dead. He leaves the hotel and turns up dead in his apartment. Right, they did. They did. So, they, yeah, they, they did not well, want him to leave that hotel and go home, but he he pretty much chose to do that. Yeah, and then of course, like you said, he's found dead with two suicide notes, both typed and but but signed. Neither signed. Oh, neither yeah. one were signed. Okay. Yeah, and it's very strange timing because it comes about one week after the Garrison investigation actually hit the newspapers. So that's. That's, um, you know, very interesting timing, how quickly that all transpired in that time. Yeah, and that was a big, huge blow to Jim Garrison, because that that right there, if, if David Ferry would have lived and talked, um, I think we'd be talking about a little bit of a different outcome, Charles. Oh, absolutely. Uh, that, Ferry, I think, had a lot more information, uh, 
uh, I think he knew quite a bit, and with his death, that information went to the grave with him. So, um, so at that point, Garrison basically is kind of at a crossroads. His star witness slash prime suspect is now dead. Now, they had already been looking into Clay Shaw because of the reports that he was Clay Bertrand and that he had been seen with Ferry and he had been seen with Oswald. So Garrison had to make, uh, and I think Garrison uh, characterized it as what he called a command decision and made the decision to go ahead and arrest Clay Shaw and charge him with conspiring to kill President Kennedy. Um, I don't think at that point he really wanted to arrest Shaw because he hadn't developed a, a strong enough case with him. But I think Garrison started to believe that if he had waited any longer on Shaw, he might be the next one to turn up missing. Yep. Yep, and, and looking back now, you know, I don't think it was any any uh, sort of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, Ac- happy accident that, that Oswald was seen handing leaflets out in front of the trademark, which Clay Shaw uh, was in charge of. And... It, and even and even in one of the videos that we have from the news crew that was that was videotaping him, it, we have what appears to be uh, Clay Shaw seen walking in the background into the building. Now, yeah, you know if 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 Clay Shaw was was uh, you know he was the head of the trademark, and if he's walking by his building and sees sees some asshole out in front of it and. Uh, you know, handing out pro-Castro leaflets, I would think... You'd would think he'd want to get rid of them pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah, you know, you'd think, you'd think uh, he'd want to put a stop to it. Yeah, he could, probably would have walked up and said, I don't want you here. You know, move on, go somewhere else. But uh, there he was, Oswald, basically untouched, handing out the leaflets right in front of the international trademarks. So. Yep. Which, which yep. tells you a little something that, you know, maybe he had an inkling of a you know, an idea of what Oswald was doing out there. Right. Yeah. So anyways, it, um, Shaw's arrested, and right after Shaw's arrest, the national media put a real mean-spirited blitz on Garrison, the likes of which I don't think has ever seen, been seen before or since. It just uh, kind of erupted uh, into a firestorm. The media really um, kicked it into high gear with their efforts to discredit Garrison and try and make him look like a liar, uh, trying to make him look like he was basically on a witch hunt, trying to make it look like he had arrested an innocent man. But Garrison's belief is that Shaw was a operator. Um maybe not a full-fledged agent, but at least a contact, contract agent for the CIA. And he was trying to, uh, you know, develop some evidence um, regarding that. Right. Which and means- at the time of the investigation, he had some trouble doing that because the CIA were being very tight-lipped. They weren't going to cooperate with Garrison. No. But in the years since, and with the, um, with the um, establishment of the AARB, uh, a lot of documents and information has come out indicating that Shaw did have a working relationship with CIA. Yeah, voila. And if Garrison would have had anything like that back then, 
again, we might have had a different outcome on things. Right. If nothing else, we would have probably at least had some more information. Exactly. So, um, there's a couple of really interesting documents, though, uh, relating to Shaw. Well, first of all, in early September, the CIA uh, convened what they called the Garrison Group, hmm. which was a group of CIA, you know, um, personnel that were basically monitoring the situation in New Orleans. And uh, there's actually one document here that was released uh, in 1998. And it was the, kind of the topic was the first meeting of the garrison group. Uh, where they kind of went over, um, you know, the agency's interest in garrison. you got to ask yourself, if Clay Shaw had no interest and no relationship with the CIA, then why is the CIA even interested in the garrison case? Exactly. Why did they got to go to the point of establishing a garrison group? Yeah. It just, I mean, if he's just, if he, they had nothing to worry about, what did they care? But right in this document here, it says that the executive director said the director had asked him to convene a group to consider the possible implications for the agency emanating from New Orleans before, during, and after the trial of Clay Shaw. So what implications could it be then? Right, they were afraid I mean, of some, something coming out. They were obviously concerned with the garrison investigation because they wouldn't go to all this trouble to have a special group if they didn't have some concerns. No, no, and, and you know, we also now have evidence of um, Garrison's investigation, investigative team, uh, his, his, his district attorney team, you know, being infiltrated by, uh, you know, CIA assets and, and, and other folks looking to disrupt things and uh, steal files and copy files. Oh, sure. Yeah, uh, Garrison uh, tells a story in a documentary of how he had a man that came on who was very enthusiastically wanting to uh, help out with the... Uh, uh, investigation and volunteers, so Garrison brought him on, and he always, Garrison always thought it was a little strange, because when the guy showed up for work, he was always carrying this big, large briefcase, and he always wondered why this guy needed such a large briefcase, then he realized, because he was taking files with him when he left. Right. You know. And it was funny, because um, they, Garrison and his men said that it, over half of their documents and half of their uh, briefs and uh, info that they had uh, got turned over to the defense. And Garrison even stated by the end that they had that the defense team had more files than they did <laughs> when the case started. I believe it. You know, which which again lends credence to the why would the CIA care so much? Well, this could be one of the reasons in that same document about the first Garrison meeting. Um, there's a um, member of the CIA staff named Raymond Roca, who they asked to just kind of do a preliminary look into the uh, case that Garrison had against Shaw, and Roca wrote up a report that stated that he felt that Garrison would obtain a conviction of Clay Shaw for conspiring to assassinate President Kennedy. So, at that point, I think alarm ball bells start going off. Oh, yeah. 
and they really because started if bringing. If he does can obtain a conviction, then what? What else does that open the door to? Exactly. That they didn't want people to know. Right, and I imagine the uh, sudden emergence of one Perry Raymond Russo uh, got them even more ruffled. Oh, absolutely. So maybe just going quickly about uh, Perry Russo's story. And Perry Russo was a New Orleans insurance agent. And he was a friend of David Ferry's, and Ferry invited him to a party he was having at that night. Uh, this was in the summer of 1963. And uh, Russo attended the party. He said that, uh, you know, there was probably about a dozen other people there. Uh, there were some uh, Cubans and, and um, a couple other people of interest there. One guy that he got introduced to, who he described as a large, white-haired man by the name of Clay Bertrand. And if you know anything about Clay Shaw, he was a large, white-haired man. The other guy Russo got introduced to was a guy that was introduced to him by Ferry as Leon Oswald. And they were at this party, and they had been drinking heavily, and then, you know, Ferry got really drunk and started, you know, ranting about Castro. He started ranting about Kennedy, and then he said that Shaw, or who he later identified as Shaw, um, who, of course, was introduced to him as Bertrand, Ferry and Oswald started talking about plans or possibilities for killing Kennedy. And then basically killing Kennedy and blaming it on Castro. Right. Because uh, Ferry was very much involved with the anti-Castro Cubans in in New Orleans. uh, And apparently also um, in the uh, training camp that the CIA was running up uh, north of New Orleans at Lake Pontchartrain. Uh, where they were training uh, large groups of Cuban exiles for hopefully another invasion of Cuba. And Ferry was apparently involved with that. Right. The, prob- the problem being with, about Leon Oswald, though, is uh, Russo described him as somewhat of a, uh, a brash, a dirty, uh, unshaven, scraggly dick, basically. Yeah. <laughs> you know, which... You know, looking into the history of Oswald, you know, there's no indication that he ever didn't shave or, I mean, we have, of course, allegations that he was a dick sometimes. Um, yeah. But never that he, never that he was unkempt or dirty, you know. True. But personally, I'm not thinking that whether it was or was Oswald, I think the more important fact is that they used that name in particular, Leon. Right. And, of course, that's not the first time that the name Leon pops up in the case, either. Well, the other interesting connection to that is that is also the name used by the two Cubans uh, who showed up on the doorstep of Sylvia Odio in September talking about, uh, you know, um, the Cuban exiles and wanting to join the up with the um, Dure, which was the uh, Democratic, I think, Democratic... Uh, what does it stand for? Drawing a blank. Anyways, they showed up at her doorstep and and with this guy who was apparently, uh, they gave him the name Leon Oswald and talked to Sylvia 
is that uh, this Leon Oswald is uh, a psycho, and uh, he thinks that uh, the Cubans should have killed Kennedy. And I have always thought that that was one of the most interesting happens stances in the case, because to me that seemed very much like um, like a setup mm-hmm. um, for a story that would be told later, and basically implicating Oswald as uh, you know this psycho that wanted to get Kennedy even though most of the other evidence that we know about Oswald tends to point in the opposite direction. Right, and we even have uh, Lawrence Howard, I think in 1965, to the FBI admitting uh, that it was him and Lauren Hall that went to see uh, Silvio Odio, and then he later recanted. Yeah. Probably under threat from from Lauren Hall. Um, Yes, probably true. But, uh... So to, t- to swing it back to New Orleans a little bit, um, and to get back to Perry Russo, um, of course, you know, they tried to discredit him, but one important thing that I'd like everybody to take into consideration is the fact that until his dying day, Perry Russo never changed his story. I guess, for the jury to buy to actually convict Clay Shaw. Well, part of the problem is, too, is that Shaw's, uh, Garrison's case had been, it took two years, almost, from the time Shaw was arrested till the time the trial started. And the media was hammering him for almost for the entire two years. There were uh, articles, horrible articles written about him, and, of course, one of the best-known um, cases of that is the one-hour NBC special, uh, the J- which was entitled The JFK Conspiracy, the Case of Jim Garrison. Yeah, and basically on that, you would have thought by the title, oh, okay, well, they're going to tell us about it. He gives us information. The whole thing was an hour-long smear job, or as I call it, a hit piece on Garrison. It wasn't in the least bit impartial. No. It was basically people saying that Garrison was drugging witnesses, which is a real stretch. Now, Garrison has admitted that he did give uh, what's called sodium pentothal, truth theorem, to, um, to witnesses. And Garrison has not denied that or anything like that. And to be honest, that's something that um, is done by many, you know, police officers. Yeah, at least back because then. Because one of the things it does is it, is it relaxes a person, and sometimes when they're relaxed, they will come out with you know more details. They'll, they're not as anxiety. They're not as much anxiety. They talk about how he drugged witnesses, how he was buying witnesses off, and uh, how he was using. Um, uh, non-reputable um, witnesses. One of the ones they point to is a guy by the name of Vernon Bundy, who was a admitted narcotics user. And they try and say, well, he was a narcotics user, so we should question 
testimony because he was a drug user. And then one of the guys they used to help discredit his story was a guy by the name of John Chanclier, who was a convict, a convicted burglar, who was in jail, was a cellmate of Vernon Bundy, and guess who put him in jail? Jim Garrison. So, are we really to believe that this guy didn't have a bit of an axe to grind against a guy that helped put him in jail? Exactly. And another guy that NBC used in this hit piece, a guy by the name of Miguel Torres, another convict, who said that the DA's office, the Garrison's office, was trying to bribe him with early release if he told stories about Clay Shaw. And what did we find? Miguel Torres was put in jail again by Jim Garrison. So we're supposed to believe that this guy who is a, is a drug user, he's not a valid witness because he's a drug user. These other two convicts who have also broken the law and who were convicted by Garrison, yet we're supposed to believe them word for word. Exactly. But, it know, just is ridiculous. Yeah, but, but Charles, one good thing did come out of that special. To tell everybody what Jim Garrison actually got to do that I, I don't think I've ever seen on television ever before, and I don't think we'll ever see it again. Well, a- after the uh, special aired, Garrison went off and he said, you know what, this isn't fair. You guys have said all this stuff about me. I'd like equal time on your network to give my side of the story. <clears throat> now, they didn't exactly give equal time, but they did give him... A unedited half an hour, um, an unedited half an hour on NBC, where he was able to go and talk to the American people directly and start telling them about why, you know, the JFK case has to be looked at, and that you know the Warren Commission is fiction. And you know what? Give me, you know, look into this. And he started giving reasons why, you know what? This has got to be looked at more. Right. And And it actually resonated quite a bit because he got quite a bit of support after that because he was able to basically, without any interference from any outside uh, help, he was able to give his story directly to the people. Yeah, and he specifically... And uh, I've never seen, like you said never seen that after and probably never see that again where someone like that is going to be given you know full carte blanche basically on a major network to at least give their side and un un um, obstructed by any other you know outside source right and I also read somewhere that after that happened they uh, they did away with that rule or that law or whatever it was that, that guaranteed them equal time so yeah <laughs> but he also and also shortly after that then um johnny carson oh yeah came into the mix and also had jim garrison on the tonight show i believe it was in late january of 1968 in fact you can go on youtube you can actually hear the full interview uh with jim garrison and johnny carson now one of the things i noted when i was listening to that and I was always a big fan of Johnny Carson. I always enjoyed his show. I thought he was a great entertainer. But one of the things I had never seen before that I saw when Johnny Carson was interviewing Jim Garrison is just how hostile Carson seemed to be towards Garrison. Garrison was trying to bring out 
you know, points of why he felt the Warren Commission got it wrong. But Carson was always saying, well, that's your opinion. Well, that's not a fact. Well, that's that, that's this. And instead of, you know, being impartial and just kind of going with it and letting the viewer decide, he, it almost seemed like he was told, you know, don't, don't let this guy get away with anything. Challenge this guy. Yeah, make and a fool out of him. I don't know. I've never seen it like that from Johnny Carson before. No, and we never saw it again after, I don't think. No. Uh, Johnny Carson always the type of guy, he's out there joking with his guests, you know, having fun, but he was very serious and very, um, like I said, he seemed very hostile to him. Now, I don't know whether that was his own feeling or whether someone asked him to do that, but I don't know. I'm sure he was told to do that, which which gives you a little yep. window into the uh, extent and the power of the, uh, well, who, who Garrison was implicating in the death of JFK, the, the CIA. Oh, yeah, and he mentioned that he was very much uh, open up front with that. Oh, most definitely. So, um... He didn't. He didn't seem to hide that. And, and the half an hour, um, uh, the half an hour special that NBC gave Garrison, he was very upfront with there that he thought it was a CIA uh, operation, and he made no bones about that. And the CIA, obviously, by the fact that they're convening a Garrison group, they were worried about it. Well, yeah, and, uh, and, and, and I think out there. part of the reason may be that uh, Clay Shaw did, in fact, have some sort of working relationship with the CIA, and there's some evidence to back that up. Right. No, uh, no. One of the things that uh, I found out when looking into this is um, there is a project uh, that the CIA was working on, and the project is called QK Enchant. Oh, yeah. And it's a secret one, and to this day, we still do not know the full details of what that operation was, in fact, um, what, in fact, that operation had to do with. But uh, there was a document released uh, in 1999. It was in a CIA internal memo again. And the subject of the memo was a man named J. Monroe Sullivan. Jamin Rule Sullivan was the director of the International Trademark in San Francisco. So basically, he held the same position that Clay Shaw held in New Orleans. So it discusses how this Jamin Rule Sullivan had received CIA security clearance uh, for this project Q. Ken Chat. It also then goes on to mention that Clay Shaw also had received CIA security clearance for this project, and not only that he had been given clearance, it even gives his number, his, his what they call the um, security clearance number. And this is supposedly Clay Shaw who said he had no connection to the CIA, hmm. yet he's been given CIA security clearance for an operation that we don't even know to this day what it had to do with. And then we come to find out later Another interesting person had been giving clearance for this project as well. Howard Hunt. Yep. Who has been linked to the JFK case up and down for years. So that's an interesting uh, little connection. And another interesting connection is that Clay Shaw, on the day of the assassination, was on a business trip in San Francisco 
where he was with Jane Monroe Sullivan, right. who had been also been given clearance for this CIA project. And to which he... Uh, so that's an interesting connection there. Yeah, and I think uh, Perry Russo also said that in the meeting that, uh, that Clay Shaw said that he would be out of town uh, as, as part of the plan of the assassination. That's right, that he'd go out of town and I believe even mentioned uh, to the West Coast. Yeah, specifically. Which, of course, is where San Francisco is. Most definitely. So, you get all these interesting tidbits um, as far as Clay Shaw's ties to the CIA. Now, back in World War II, Shaw was allegedly a medic in the CIA, but there has also been some, a lot of people that said that Shaw was not really a medic in the CIA, that in fact that he was actually, during World War II, working for the OSS. Which was the uh, kind of the uh, preliminary, the uh, precursor to the CIA. They were responsible for intelligence gathering a lot during the Second World War. And another interesting tidbit, which I found out when researching a recent article that I wrote, is that Shaw's military record is classified. Hmm. What do you got to classify a record of a medic for? If he's a simple medic, what do they need to classify it for? Exactly. It just doesn't make any sense. So you found all these little tidbits of Shaw's uh, connection to the CIA, not to mention the least of which Richard Helms in the late 1970s, admitting under oath that Shaw had been a contact of the CIA's domestic contact division. So we go from Shaw not having any connection to the CIA with all, and instead we've got all of these different little uh, tidbits showing that he did have a relationship with the CIA. And, of course, a lot of this stuff wasn't noted by Garrison. He didn't know about it because, again, any time he went to the CIA and asked him for information, the CIA would stonewall him. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. I wonder why that is. Yeah, I think if he would have had a lot of this information back then, it would have been a different story. I think if David Ferry would have lived and talked, it would have been a different story. Mm -hmm. I think if Guy Bannister would have lived and talked, it might have been a different story. Well, Bannister's a guy we haven't even touched on yet. And he, I think, was up to this thing up to his eyeballs. Because uh, he's a link there as well between Shaw and, or not between Shaw, but between uh, uh, Ferry and Oswald. Of course, as you may know, uh, Oswald was running an office at 544 Camp Street. Yeah. Which, of course, was the same building that housed Guy Bannister's um, offices. And yeah. you got to think of this. Apparently, Guy Bannister, well, not apparently, Guy Bannister was a rabid anti-communist. Oh, yeah. He doesn't seem to me like to be the kind of guy that if a communist sympathizer was running an office in the same building where his office was, I'm guessing he wasn't going to be a, the type of guy that actually stood for that. And then there's, of course, the famous um, incident uh, that Jack Martin told Garrison about where uh, Bannister's secretary, Delphine Roberts, comes into Bannister's office while the two of them are sitting there and shows actually shows Bannister one of the leaflets that uh, Oswald was passing out, the, uh, the pro-Castro leaflets, and Bannister just kind of chuckled and said, it's okay, he's with us. <laughs> 
Delphine Roberts, she didn't talk to, she did she didn't, I guess, open up to Garrison, did she? I mean, that was only later, I think, Anthony. No, that was later. That was, that was a story that I believe Jack Martin had actually told Garrison. Okay. Um, but, uh, Delphine Roberts never actually talked to much, much later. Garrison couldn't get her to talk. And of course, there's and that was another thing is that a lot of witnesses wouldn't, co- like I said before, wouldn't cooperate with Garrison for several different reasons. Right, one of them being so meeting. they go to trial with Clay Shaw, and the trial once again Garrison gets another little surprise during his trial where things actually, if you look at it, were going. Not too badly for Garrison. Some of his early witnesses were making some good headway. And then Garrison put on the stand a guy named Charles Spizel. And by the way, the name is not, that's a souring my name, but anyways, that's either here or there. So Charles Spizel was an accountant from New York City. And he, at first, sounded like he would have been a slam dunk gold star witness because he testified that he met Shaw and Ferry in a hotel while on a business trip to New Orleans. And again, much like Perry Russo, he said that Ferry and Shaw had discussed uh, a plot to kill Kennedy. So again, that would have been a bombshell announcement. But then the defense got up and started questioning him. And then he started saying how he was being followed by the government and that he had been put under hypnosis by the government, I think he said at least a dozen times. And then he went on and said that he had actually fingerprinted his daughter before and after she went to college to make sure that the government had not substituted a double. In other words, he sounded like a a crazy man. Right. And that really hurt Garrison's credibility with the jury because this witness that they put on, who magically came and fell in Garrison's lap, I believe a week before they put him on the stand, and then he goes on and tells this this whopper of a story, and Garrison and his men felt that he may have actually been a plant sent there to sabotage him. Yeah, I think Garrison got fed fish there. It's very possible. Unbelievable. So let's uh let's get to, to, I guess more towards the end, um, you know it, it losing losing that conviction to Shaw really I think really really hurt Garrison. Um, and I don't mean professionally. I mean he you know he went on to be a judge and all that. I, I just mean it, it. I guess it was a blow to his ego, and it showed him that that those in power are still in power. Oh, absolutely. Uh, uh, Garrison knew what he was up against. Uh, Garrison knew that, uh, he knew right from the outset that getting a conviction against Shaw was a massive long shot. Uh, he knew that when he arrested him, and he even knew it even more by the time it went to trial. But, uh, you know, he, it, for him, it was more about the ends justifying the means. I think it was, by the end, it became more of getting the information into a public record into transcripts and getting them out for public consumption um, because he, I think he really felt that Garrison that, you know what, uh, I'm fighting, you know, the big government and they're going to win, but at least I can somewhat strike a blow against them and maybe 
convince some other people. Because you would have thought that after the Shaw acquittal, he would have, uh, you know, backed off and kind of, you know, stopped talking about the, the uh, Kennedy case. But right up until the day he died, he was out there, he was traveling around, giving lectures. I think he wrote uh, three books. He was a consultant for Oliver Stone. Uh, he really, um, you know, he knew that, um, what did he say, that the uh, government knows that they had been danced with, I think, because if you ever know uh, the people in New Orleans, they talk, you know, with the, uh, the interesting uh, language. He said that they knew that they had been danced with because uh, he was one the only public official to this date to actually try and take them on and try and expose them for their the uh, the Kennedy assassination, right? Or or to even try to take it to trial because people got to remember that this is still an open murder case in Dallas, Texas. And That's right because there has never been a conviction of anybody in this case. Right. So with that, it still has to be considered a cold case, yeah, uh, an right. open case, because yeah. Oswald obviously never convicted because Ruby took care of that, and um, it's still really an open case. I mean, I'm sure the government will tell you, oh, no, the case is closed, Oswald did it, uh, we've got it, but um, it's not a closed case, and that's why there's so many people out there, uh, you know, in the... Um, writing books, there's people out there on Facebook debating it every day, there's people writing articles, and, and it's not just American people, there are so many great uh, other researchers out there, uh, not just from the U.S., although there are a lot in the U.S., but of course you, you talk about some of the other ones, you had Greg Parker on just recently from Australia, um, another uh, friend of mine, uh, Trish Fleming, who's a fellow Canadian, uh, you've got... Um, Another gentleman um, from, um, well, you got Leno Sanic. I'm sure you know Leno Sanic, who oh, yeah. is also Canadian and here from BC, who does a, a podcast as well, Black Op Radio. Um, and you've got so many other people from, you know, US. You've got people from England. Uh, there's the Daily Plaza UK site. So it's all over the world, and people still have an interest in this case, and people will probably always still have an interest in this case until we ever do find out exactly what happened. Yeah, and, it, and it, it blows my mind still to this day that, you know, people not only here but worldwide, you know, have, have, have taken it upon themselves to be interested enough in the case to actively research it and, you know, continue to write books and continue to do great things and uh, continue to stay in the loop. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard enough to do to to actually stay interested with things going on in your own country, let alone things going on outside of your country. But mm-hmm. I think the ramifications felt from Kennedy's assassination were felt worldwide, you know, not just here. I mean, you know, we're still... Oh, it was. Yeah, we're, I mean, we're still living with the ripple effects now, you know, with all these, mm-hmm. you know, continuing wars all throughout the world, you know, and uh, spreading the freedom, you know, throughout the world uh, that we continue to do. And, uh, you know, it's just, you know, one thing I wanted to touch back on, Charles, um, before we wrap up here is, you know, a lot of people tend to dismiss the whole New Orleans part of this case because on the surface, it's, it's, it's really hard to make a connection between New Orleans and what was going on there and what happened in Dallas. And that's the gray area, I think, uh, for most people. 
you know, to make that giant leap from what the hell was going on in New Orleans to what happened a couple months later in Dallas. And, you know, it, it, it's hard to make the connections between, you know, Jack Ruby and Lee Oswald and, you know, David Ferry, Clay Shaw, and maybe who was, who was calling the shots. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's very, very hard to make that connection, you know. Well, I think a large part of the whole New Orleans thing was Oswald being in New Orleans in the summer of 63. I believe that was kind of at the beginning stages of the plot, because I think the whole purpose of the New Orleans thing was to try and give Oswald a more public identity. If you look before the summer of 1963, Oswald was not out there, he wasn't handing stuff out, he wasn't going on radio interviews, he wasn't doing anything like that. He gets to New Orleans in 19... In 63, and what does he start doing? He's out on the street handing out leaflets. He's getting into altercations with uh, anti-Castro Cubans, which I think was a staged, myself, I think was a staged um, uh, event. I think that was planned to happen. Then he's going on radio shows and talking about his Marxism. Then he's going on, he did a television interview. In that summer, he became, begins the process of giving himself not just a higher profile, but a higher profile as a Castro Marxist supporter. And I think that guys like Ferry and Shaw in New Orleans, their purpose at that point was to get Oswald out there and get him seen by as many people as possible. You mentioned the fact of uh, Oswald handing out uh, leaflets in front of the International Trademark. Then, of course, we have the famous story of Oswald uh, going with Shaw and Ferry up to the Clinton-Jackson location up not far from New Orleans. And again, that again is to, I think, get him out in front of people, get him out of the profile. Uh, we have him lining up for a voter registration. Well, he didn't live in Louisiana. Well, he lived in Louisiana, but why is he needing to go to a voter registration? Well, because he then showed up at the mental hospital in Jackson trying to obtain a job. And again, it's getting him out there. It's getting him out there seen by people. And then... I know Jim DiEugenio, who's the head of the CTTA, believed that the purpose of the Clinton-Jackson trip, or one of the main purposes, was to get him to go to the Louisiana State Hospital and have him fill out an application form as if he were applying for the job. And Jim DiEugenio believes that after that, that job application was going to be taken out and actually put in as a patient application to make him look like he's got mental problems right. as part of this setup as for him down the road to be a patsy. And the Clinton-Jackson uh, incident is well documented. There was at least half a dozen witnesses that testified at Shaw's trial to this trip that identified Sher- <clears throat> Ferry, Shaw, and Oswald. They testified at the Shaw trial then they go on and they testified at the HSCA. And 
HSCA in their report found that all of the Clinton witnesses were credible. They believed that the Clinton witnesses were telling the truth and had established a relationship between Shaw, Ferry, and Oswald three months before the assassination. And then, of course, you have him in New Orleans handing out leaflets, handing out, uh, promoting Castro. Then there's the incident, like I mentioned a few minutes ago, with uh, Carlos Brignier, where they got into a, a scuffle, an altercation uh, on the streets. And here's another interesting part that I've always found strange. They have this big altercation. They get into this quote-unquote fight on the sidewalk. Carlos Brignier basically walks away scot-free, despite the fact that all the witnesses said that he started the incident and he was the more aggressive of the two parties during the incident. Right. But yet Oswald spends the night in jail. So one guy walks free, one guy spends the night in jail, and then what does Oswald do? He has to speak to the FBI. Yeah, so tell him you got well, I don't think he's talking to the company. FBI about an altercation he's fighting in the side of a street corner. He talks to the FBI, and uh, the notes from the FBI interview, surprise, surprise, get destroyed. Yep. So we don't know what they talked about. So something was going on in New Orleans, and the whole point, I think, of the whole New Orleans situation was to give Oswald a higher profile. And it may not even have been 100% for sure for the assassination to begin with. It might have been for some type of operation that the CIA was setting up down the road. But somebody wanted Oswald to be seen and by as many people as he could and to have a higher profile and to have that profile show him off as a communist sympathizer. Right. So I think that's a large part of what the New Orleans... Um, side of the case was. I think that the guys like Ferry and Shaw, they were just, you know, being asked by people above them, you know, to do all these things. They were just being asked to do this. They may not have even been told right off the bat what they were told to do it for. But they just say, you know what, we want you, we, there's this guy here in New Orleans, we want you to do this with him, we want you to take him here, we want you to let him do this. And let's get him out there, and let's have people see what he's doing. Yeah, and I think uh, I think Bannister was a big big part of that. You know, he was a he was an avid communist hunter. Um, you know, and and reporting back to the FBI. You know, getting people on his list, getting students from Tulane on the list, getting returning servicemen on the on the list. Um, you know, much like McCarthy was doing, he was you know he was right. He was out hunting for communists. I mean. And that's what, Charles, I think that's what a lot of this stems from in New Orleans, yeah. is, it, is this anti-communist sen sentiment. Oh, absolutely. And I think Bannister was one of the uh, the chief operators, may have been the top guy in New Orleans. I think he was the guy that was probably overseeing all of this. Right. And, you know, he was a guy, and he was, obviously, he had ties to the FBI, and um, he obviously, I think, was probably, you know, in connection with the CIA, he had been involved in the ONI, the Office of Naval Intelligence, so he's the guy to keep an eye on everything. He was the guy that was kind of the watchman, if you will. Right. And if you remember that um, nineteen six, that famous 1960 memo 
thing that uh, uh, someone was using Lee Harvey Oswald's names to buy trucks. Hmm. And the group that was doing this was called the Friends of Democratic Cuba. Well, Guy Bannister was on the board of directors for the Friends of Democratic Cuba. Exactly. So it starts tying in back then. Yep, and even if this wasn't a CIA operation straight from the top down, you know, even if it was this group of guys who had these anti-Castro ties, who, oh, yeah. who might have had anti-Kennedy sentiment because of his softness on communism and his unwillingness to do anything about Cuba. Right. Um, you know, even if they... What kind of makes sense to me is if, if you know, if it wasn't like a a total agency plot. Even if it was this, this group of guys, you know, they got together, you know, Shaw and Ferry and, and, and a couple other people and decided that Kennedy had to go because of his stance, soft stance on communism and his unwillingness to do anything about Cuba and his unwillingness to back these anti-Castro Cubans and get Castro out of power or to do anything that they were going to, um, you know, and with, and with, with, with what they were doing in Cuba with these, uh, these freedom fighters, they weren't really getting anywhere um, doing that. So what other option did they have other than to turn the guns on Kennedy? You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. I, I don't, I've never thought that it was a full agency right from the very top. I think it was a, um, a plan by, uh, you know, groups of guys, Cuban exiles and agents of the CIA, guys that were likely involved with the Bay of Pigs, because a lot of those guys felt betrayed and a lot of those guys felt double-crossed by Kennedy because Kennedy wouldn't provide any support for them at the Bay of Pigs. And then the Cuban Missile Crisis hits in 1962, and these guys are finally thinking, okay, well, Kennedy's finally going to go in, he's finally going to get rid of Castro, he's finally going to get rid of all that uh, uh, that communist uh, from Cuba. Kennedy decides not to invade in 1962, cuts a deal with the Soviet Union not to invade Cuba so that the Soviet Union will remove the missiles. And again, that sets them off even more because, once again, they said they're going to get rid of Castro, and they don't. So then you got this group just kind of spinning out there in the winds. They start this training camp up near Lake Pontchartrain, and again... Kennedy shuts the camp down. So at that point, they're thinking, okay, we want to get rid of Castro, but we're not going to be able to unless we get rid of Kennedy. And they figured that's where we have to go with this. And then I think that you've got this group of guys, and I think guys, you know, uh, guys like Howard Hunt, guys like David Phillips, guys that were involved in this anti-Castro um, efforts by the CIA, um, basically got together, plotted this out to kill Kennedy, and then I think the hierarchy in the CIA probably got wind of this or probably told this and basically have to just cover up because it was their guys that were involved in doing it, and if it ever got out, it would destroy the CIA. So they got to just basically keep it shut and make sure nothing, um, nothing comes out, and this is why you're seeing in these meetings the concern, like this one document says, that basically they have to um, consider the possible implications for the agency emanating from Clay Shaw's trial. 
right? Like you were alluding because to before. Knew, if think, he gets convicted, and if all this information comes out, it could destroy their agency. Yeah, and like, and like you were alluding to before, you know, I think we get the lone nut narrative um, thanks to uh, cooler heads prevailing, you know, when, when it comes to, uh, you know, pinning, pinning this on Oswald, but instead of pinning it on pro-Castro Oswald with ties, you know, to supporting Cuba and, and being a former Soviet resident, you know, a former traitor to the states and defecting to the Soviet Russia, you know, where I think if if more of those ties were, were brought out back then, and, uh, you know, a lot of people would have been screaming to go to war, a lot of people would have been screaming for, for Castro's head, to, you know, for us to do something, and right. people were... People were scared. You know, it was the nuclear age, and people were scared uh, it was going to lead to World War Three. So, hence, we get the uh, the crazy lone nut assassin with no ties to anybody, just this crazy guy, you know, who got a wild hair up his ass one day and decided to kill the president. Yes, because if you'll notice the narrative, on the day of the assassination, in the media, when they're doing the reports, they brought up quite a bit, uh, quite often, that he was... Um, you know, connected to the Fair Play for Cuba committee, and it started out. But more and more, as we got farther away from uh, the actual event, his ties to Cuba and Castro and the communism, they just seemed to disappear, slowly disappear, and more and more, he just became some malcontent lone nut that was just pissed off at the world. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Charles, I think we pretty much uh, covered everything here. Is there anything you wanted to touch on that we did not get into here about New Orleans and the Garrison investigation? Uh, I think we've, no, I think we've covered basically uh, everything, I think. Um, I think we covered it pretty good there. Oh, no doubt. I mean, I mean I'm mean, i sure we could probably talk about this for hours, man. But, uh, oh, one thing I will just bring up is uh, we were talking about earlier about the um, – the government uh, and the media um, kind of uh, attacks against Garrison the way they um, the way they really went after Garrison and gave him no credit and tried to discredit him. Well, in a document that came out in 1998, basically the CIA um, put out a document, um, basically in dealing with critics of the Warren Commission for their people if uh, they get into a conversation or anything with people in the Warren Commission how to you know rebuke that uh, refute that and one of the things they mention is using friendly media assets to basically support the Warren Commission and support the official story well that seems to be what they did to Jim Garrison because you've got a lot of these media assets out there and it was universally, right across the board, uh, the New York Times, Washington Post, NBC, CBS, just going after Garrison. And it seemed to be right from the talking points laid out in this CIA document. So I guess the, their plan uh, seemed to work pretty well. Yeah, and label us all as conspiracy theorists, you know? <laughs> yes, conspiracy theorists. Conspiracy yeah. theorists. Crazy folks. Yeah, nut jobs uh, with their tinfoil hats watching, uh, looking out their windows for UFO and alien spaceships. Yeah. Yeah, we see, oh, take off your tinfoil hat. They, they always, they all, that's another thing they do is they always try and say, oh, well, 
you're just into the JF conspiracy. You probably believe in aliens and Elvis being alive. Blah blah. It's nothing like that. They're different. So different completely. Right. And, and hopefully, yeah. in a couple of weeks, Charles, we're going to get into the brain of uh, of one of these. Uh, well, Warren Commission apologists, loan nutters, and who's agreed to come on the show, and, and we're going to have a nice, civilized conversation about exactly why they believe what they believe. Yeah. And which should be in Well, and that's what you got to, yeah, and that's what you got to do. When, when you're talking to uh, a guy who is a, a loan nutter uh, supporter, you've got to talk to him in a calm, rational, um, you know, a calm, rational don't let the emotions get up you because a lot of people not like what they say. But the problem is, if you get let emotions get into it and you start going off the rails, that just hurts you, hurts your purpose more than it helps. Right, and of course they're not all the same, just like we're not all the same. Yeah, you, know, well, you got a lot of people on the conspiracy side too that uh, <laughs> uh, you know <laughs> I don't have the time of day for a lot of them. Yeah, I, I know. And Miss Baker. Yeah. Um, anyways, <laughs> speaking of the Gar- speaking of the Garrison case, there's someone that kind of put herself right in the middle of it, didn't she? Interesting. Yeah. But I don't want to go out about her. She's not worth the time. Exactly. I mean, you know, if, if Jim Garrison back, and this is a point I like to point out a lot too. You know, if if Jim Garrison, with all his contacts, with all his informants back then, did not turn this woman up, uh, not even slightly. Um, yeah. Then, exactly. You know what? I, I, I'm going to discount it, you know. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I've said that to some of her supporters, too. They just said, oh, well, this and this and that. I'm like, yeah, right. You know, he would have turned her up if she existed. Of course he would have. Yeah. But I guess that's, uh, that'll do it for this week, Charles. I appreciate you All coming right. on and, and talking with me about this. Well, I enjoyed it. Anytime you want to do it, anytime, I'd be happy to do it with you. So. Awesome. Yeah, I'd love to have you back here in the near future. Um, Stick on the line with me here, Charles. All right. And uh, that's it for today, people. This some bitch is in the can, beamed up to the satellite, down directly to your ears. This is Rob Clark thanking my special guest, Charles Cliff, for being on the show. Y'all stay tuned next week for a special Lone Nutter guest. Peace.
You do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt Bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. You do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt Bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only.